This month, we're celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24. And to mark the anniversary, we're counting down some of our favorite moments on air. We're kicking off today's clips with our interview with the piano maestro Chili Gonzalez, who gave a few lessons on the keys to our Robert Bount for the Monocle Weekly. But it's interesting that you can divide up the octave, which is the distance between this and this. There's 12 notes, but different cultures have different numbers of scale. They divide it up differently, so to speak. So the blues scale is only the black notes, which you pointed out were this. And we just add in this note here. Can you play that for me, Rob? So that is the blue scale now. So in theory, we now have all the tools that Jerry Lee Lewis had for his right hand. So one exercise we can try is to go like this. This is a classic Jerry Lee Lewis riff. Right? And so you have to remember that you have this whole scale, but you want to orient always. Orient, right, on this right here. And then use the others to fill in. That's one way you could possibly start. Should we try that? So this is like this, right? Yeah. Something's exactly. not right then. Yeah, what you want to do is you want to, you want to use this as a kind of little step. This is called an appoggiatura. The note that people hear is this, but to give it a little bit of swagger, what you do is you play the immediate neighbor note either below or above. In this case, it's below. So we have a B flat that's our destination note, and we're going to play the A natural right below it, right? Okay. That's the essence of the blues right there. Can you hear it? Can you, he can you hear the life I've lived? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. got to... <laughs> I can feel that you woke up this morning and something happened to you. Did you someone left you this morning. I can hear that just in that note. Either my dog or my wife yeah. clearly left me and only this Jack Daniels can fix it, right? Okay. <laughs> so you see that? You hit normally, but the B flat has that little appoggiatura, the little okay. blue note. And then you can fill in with any of the black notes. You ready? I feel we finally achieved something here, Chile. You, you were good. Uh, you were good, but fair master and teacher. I think. Now the semitone that we found the blue note in. I just want to point out that this isn't just something for the blues. For example, this is one of the poetic points of the piano. A voice can kind of hit the blue note in between these two notes. So can a saxophone. It can go like and go. It can live in between these two notes. But there's something tragic about the piano because can't bend the notes like you can on other instruments. So the only way to really approximate that is with things like the blue note, which create a kind of illusion, or just pieces that sort of revolve around the semitone, like, you know, what's Beethoven doing there except pointing out sort of the futility of the piano trying to live in between those two notes? I think there's something very poetic about the fact that the piano is kind of actually a limited instrument, but tries to be the sort of uh, orchestral instrument par excellence, you know? And one last thing about the semitone is that Thelonious Monk, the jazz pianist, um, he decided to play semitones, these neighbor notes, together, which normally should sound kind of wrong, you know? You know, but he kind of... And in a classical way, you can always rationalize almost every pairing of notes and turn it into something beautiful. So this... If it sounds dissonant, dissonant at first, it can become this. 
that's Odessa, one of the pieces from the reintroduction etudes, for example, where I try to get that semitone and sort of really understand that any two combinations of notes that you can hit can somehow be rationalized with the right harmony behind it. So there is no such thing as a wrong note, actually. Next up, we're heading back to Eurovision 2017. Every year, we dispatch our resident Eurovision expert, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, to the International Singing Contest. And that year, it was in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. While he was there, Faye met with the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, who also happens to be a three-time world heavyweight boxing champion. Ukraine is a European country. Uh, uh, Kiev is a European city. Uh, we act, not uh, everyone knows the middle of Europe here in Ukraine. And uh, we actually European people uh, with our history, with our mentality. But uh, we're working right now pretty hard to uh, bring to Ukraine European standards of life. It's very important. And uh, we are very happy to be capital of music, European music in this week because it's Eurovision in here in Kiev is great event and we're very happy to see so many guests, so many friends who come to Kiev to listen to music and uh, someone who doesn't have a chance to be present by himself in, uh, in Kiev can see the event in, uh, by TV translation broadcasting in uh, everyone's world. So, uh, last Eurovision have public it's more than 230 million amazing numbers it is amazing numbers and let's talk a little bit about your plans for the city during the event for example we're here currently at the city hall I can see your village is literally in front of the city hall that's quite interesting you're very close to the big where the fans will be so tell us a bit about the plans you did for Eurovision this year for the city yes of course uh, our goal my first job Many know Klitschko as world-famous sportsman. Some people know me as mayor of Kyiv, but not everybody know my first job. All first job, I working as guide. I make excursion for the people. I know my city so well. I know uh, how big touristic potential have our city. And we have a chance right now to invite so many people from around the world to visit to Kyiv. And everybody surprised how beautiful city, European city. It's a city with some special energy. How gas-friendly people live in our city. And uh, that's why... If I see the last year uh, Jamala won Eurovision, I jump so high, I can't believe it's our country, our city will be guest city for many uh, people who come to visit, to visit Ukraine, to visit Kiev. And it's a great event and our main goal to make every visit very comfortable and everyone who leave Kiev live with great positive emotion and good memory about capital of Ukraine. I had a good impression at the beginning. I thought people were very friendly, actually. And another interesting thing I noticed, I know, uh, you know, in your career in politics, you're very much anti-corruption all the time. And I saw, it's interesting, on the immigration, as soon as you arrive in Ukraine, there's a poster, we don't accept corruption in Ukraine. That, that's quite interesting. Uh, is this one of your main goals as a mayor of, of the city as well? We receive, we receive for the old system from Soviet Union. It's a big, unflexible and corrupt. And I never studied that, but uh, I know one rules. If you want very much, you can reach any goal. No fight, no win, no fight. And we're fighting for the future of our country. 
corruption is biggest enemy for our country and uh, we're doing very good progress to do it everything understandable everything transparent corruption like shadow and we doing everything is open to use experience of uh, international companies to implement the city a smart city system and to make open our budget all income all spending and all uh, journalists activists can control everything to give open the power for society authority have to be open and also with the help with activists with journalists we do it all process transparent and understandable it's good way it's main weapon against corruption we do it uh, pretty good progress in last years but we have a lot of task for the future And let's talk about Kiev, the city as well. Even though uh, Ukraine had uh, some difficult moments politically in recent years, uh, the city, it's managing to grow still as well. So uh, what's the secret of it? We change the city. We invest the money for infrastructure. With the, actually, great numbers. The population in the city growing up. We doesn't have job less. Zero job less. Instead, them half million people every morning drive to Kiev to work and in the evening leave the city. We have income for 30% more than in pre-year. We have actually right now resources and invest the money uh, for infrastructure, new street, new squares, new parks. And uh, the people see how change the city. It's actually our main goal to develop the potential what have our city. And we have four times more investors than in pre-year and uh, our expectations for next year 10 times more and we is good signal it's good signal for everyone and you know what i can explain so much but i like very much if people come to ukraine listen about the war listen about the conflict i think it's a wild east they coming and told sorry So beautiful cities, so beautiful people, so great European European city, and everybody surprised and uh, doesn't want to leave. Everyone who come to Kiev, I told, is a Kiev very dangerous city. People ask me why? Why is dangerous? Because you visit city, and many people don't want to leave the city, and that's why we have big German community, we have big American community. It's uh, people coming to Kiev and see how beautiful and don't, uh, how beautiful city don't want to live. And uh, that why it's dangerous uh, if you come first time, it's a risk to stay forever in our city. <laughs> That's a big danger. <laughs> Finally, Vitaly, my last question. Uh, being the mayor, can you relate your job now when you were a boxer? Are there any similarities between both jobs? To be heavyweight champion of the world was much easier than to be the mayor of Kyiv because you fighting two, three times a year. In this job, I fighting every year. Much more adrenaline, much more opponents and huge expectation of the people. And that's why it's not easy, but I know one rules well, very well no fight no win that's why i continue to fight for my city for my country for my future now back in 2019 robert bound headed off for a trip across hawaii for our program the road ahead made in association with audi during his trip he met a world-renowned ukulele player and was privy to an impromptu performance almost halfway point overlooking 
Kaloloa Point, having just had a swim at Haipuena Falls. Excuse the mispronunciation, Hawaiians out there. You must be used to it by now. Um, what no one is used to is the beauty of this thing. You might be able to hear the lapping of the waves, sometimes crashing in the background as the, the forest, thick as anything, comes straight down to the shoreline. And we look out across something that strangely looks like it could be a stormy day on Lake Como. What road trip isn't complete without a bit of music? And what instrument sums up Hawaii better than the ukulele? The instrument was introduced by Portuguese immigrants to these islands in the 19th century. Now the Kamaka family in Honolulu are probably the most well-known makers. Started by Samuel Kamaka, it's now run by his grandson Chris, who also happens to be a Grammy-nominated musician, a small fact he almost glossed over when we met him. Chris oversees production in their small factory in the back of their downtown shop. Here, they make ukuleles for customers all over the world, including some of the biggest stars of the uke, such as the local Jake Shimabukuro. My name is Chris Kamaka, and I am a third generation here at our family business Kamako ukuleles. We've been building instruments this year, makes 102 years. We talked downstairs in the workshop, in the factory, about the manufacture of these things and the grading of them and the graining of them and all the different things that add up to it. But what about the cultural side of it, Chris? What do ukulele mean to Hawaiians? It's part of the Hawaiian culture that's so, like, like, that is such a vibrant culture that so many people recognise all over the world. Ukulele is so much part of that. I mean, obviously, you're right at the forefront of making these things. What does it mean? Is there, is there one in everyone's house, a ukulele? For us, growing up, it was always around, you know, and my aunts and uncles were all musicians, and uh, my grandfather himself, uh, a musician, so, you know, the making of guitars was very fascinating to him, and, and, and the ukulele kind of was an offshoot of that for him. He started, you know, back in the 1916. In his garage was just making it for family and uh, eventually it, it blossomed to where he started his first factory over on King Street and then from there eventually here where we are today at 550 South Street. Unfortunately for me I never had the chance to meet my grandfather but my dad slowly kind of taught us what to look for and what to listen for and just watch and learn while he was building Along with uh, the other uh, employees, as I, I told you about earlier, um, you know, just growing up with them and eventually getting to feel that passion and be a part of it is was really important and exciting for me. The sort of Hawaiian songbook, the nature of driving around Honolulu and Maui for a few days, has taught us that tuning in the radio station half of the music is hawaiian it sounds to my ear like traditional music updated traditional music so that there's something very strong about that culture and it's centered around the ukulele and obviously the voice i wonder why you think it's so solid that that culture and, and actually quite unchanged it's always been a mainstay because it's it's a soothing instrument and it's, like I say, it's not hard to play and it, people can take it with them and it's just really soothing to play. Like for me, I play it every day. Uh, maybe sometimes I kind of take it for granted, but for me, just checking each instrument is really soothing for me. 
how do you check it? Do you, well, you play I some chords? You play, play something play some new, chords, something old? Uh, you maybe sing a little song or something, but just kind of get the feel, make sure the the action, the, the height of the strings is correct. Make sure as far as structurally everything looks good. As I said earlier, by the time it gets to me, it's pretty close, you know, unless somebody was to miss something, you know, the, the finish or mainly the playability, getting the action correct. And so, you know, when you're playing it, it doesn't hurt. You want to play it, so you want to keep playing it. You know, it's comfortable. When we walked into your shop at the front, Chris, we saw some of the different ones. You've got in a glass box. There's the cigar box model. There's the standard model. I was looking at the, the sort of family tree of some of your designs. One's called Otasan. There's the long neck. There's a tenor. Some of them are obviously the tenor is, a, is, a, is a, I guess, a musical grade. What about the other ones? What, are they different? Are they just different designs f- for aesthetic reasons, or they all make different sounds? Yeah, my grandfather actually started with the pineapple shape. Pineapple. Then the figure eight is our standard shape. We have a soprano, alto, tenor, and then the baritone, which is our biggest. So, as you get bigger, you get a little more sound, a little deeper tone as it gets bigger. And then we have variations off those sizes, like the six-string tenor, eight-string tenor. Um, those are basically tuned the same way, just octaves on different strings or unison. It's kind of like a 12-string guitar. So that's the fancy one. That's that's when you need your George Harrison. <laughs> yeah, in fact, George, yeah, he did have the six-string. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. That's right. And let's go back to the testing because I'm intrigued by this. And I like the idea of you maybe sitting here or, or, or somewhere on your premises here in Honolulu testing these things out. What are the favorite songs that you would do to use to, to test out a ukulele that come in and was going out and being repaired or indeed a brand new one that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I, I just drum some basic Hawaiian songs that I enjoy, like one, maybe one from my hometown or even one that my dad used to sing all the time, a good little lullaby. Even a favorite song of uh, King Kalakaua's, which my dad used to enjoy singing too. <laughs> kind of strum along with it. <laughs> down the most memorable moments on Monocle 24 over its decade on air, from the biggest breaking news to silliest moments to some of the most moving. 
This clip we've chosen falls in the latter category as the great American writer Armistad Mopan reads the letter that he wrote to his parents to tell them he was gay. This comes from an episode of Meet the Writers that was first aired in 2017. Mopan was in conversation with Georgina Godwin. Of course, you were out from the minute you went to San Francisco, really, to everybody that lived there and anybody that cared to read your column closely, I'm sure, would have realised that. But your parents didn't particularly. But there was one piece of writing that you directed really straight at them. Yes. um, In a way, it was cowardly, I suppose. I could have just called them on the phone and said this and this and this, but I wanted to get everything right. I wanted to make it... I wanted to put my finest effort into telling them how I felt about being gay and how I felt about them in regard to that because so many parents do this thing of what did we do wrong, you know, how did we make him that way? And I wanted to just be very clear with them that I was in a very happy space. So I wrote a letter that I put in the in the words I, I made it Michael Tolliver, my gay character writing his parents. It's become iconic, really, an iconic piece of literature, an iconic piece of gay literature. It's the letter, I think, that every gay child goes to. You can insert your own name in there and and send it off to your parents, can't you? Yeah, I heard that at the time, 40 years ago, and I still hear it, uh, amazingly enough. And it's been set to music several times. Big choruses perform it. Ian McKellen and uh, Stephen Fry have performed it in public places. And in a way, it kind of sums up everything that this book and Tales of the City are about. I suppose it does. It it took me less than 45 minutes to write it. That's the odd part, (laughs) because I'd been planning to say it for 15 years. Would you read it to us? Sure. Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write to you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents, and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama, not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew, even as a child, was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasoned homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando, had taken me aside and said, you're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, 
You can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile at you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you must be thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can say except I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael. Alistair Morpin, thank you so much. Next up, we've got another big interview for you with Sir Ian McKellen. The actor was in conversation with our Robert Bound. I've got Gandalf's hat down in the basement. In fact, you could tell your listeners I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> this is the magic of radio. I, I see also Magneto's hat in the corner of the room. Oh, right? that's right. You see, it, it is. In that's, terms of that's these... for young people who come around and they want to try it on. Do these come out on high days and holidays? Are these artifacts No, that's permanent. If you want to see Gandalf's staff, you have to go to the pub, which I co-own, mm-hmm. called The Grapes in Limehouse. And there it is behind the bar. Oh, right. It's the, yes. kind of, it's the equivalent of the Yard of Ale or the shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about some of the work of acting, actually, mm. um, which people, as you say, people want to kind of hear, you know, when the set fell down or when, you know, yeah. you know when the staff broke in half or when something yeah. happened like this. But d- is that one of the things that people underestimate, the actual work of it? The script pops on the front door mat and there is a lot of, there is a lot of stuff involved before you ever set foot in an agent's office, let alone on the stage or on the set mm. of a film. Well, yes, acting is a job, isn't it? If you're doing a play it's likely that uh, you'll be involved in the planning of it because who's going to play the leading parts in a play will be crucial to probably whether it happens or it doesn't. So I rather enjoy that because I I like to know what the director is thinking, how it might be, uh, what the design of the play might look like, uh, where we might be performing it, how long a rehearsal we might get. 
and even sometimes a little bit to do with the casting of the rest of the actors. So I feel very involved. But the film, the actors are the last thing to be engaged, I suppose, unless you're Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise, in which case everything's organised around you. But the sort of parts I play, um, everything's all rather set up. And then uh, you feel very much like a, a hired help and getting involved can be rather tricky because it, it's all rather quick and you, you arrive on the first day not to rehearse. You'd have had your costume designed and your makeup if necessary. But on the first day, you're just expected to act <laughs> with, no, <laughs> with, no, with no real preparation. So unless you've done it yourself. So you do do it yourself, of course. You learn the lines and, and you puzzle over how they fit in, and you probably won't start filming well, at the beginning of the film, but maybe midway through, depending on which location you're, or studio you're visiting. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it is work. Whether it's hard work, it depends how you look at it. Many people think that the last thing they could imagine themselves doing is, is standing up in public and risking making a fool of themselves or talking in front of a large live audience again would be horrific to most people that is the easy side of acting to me the the, the difficult side is believing in myself to be the character and that can take uh, energy and imagination and a lot of chat with the director of course and maybe the writer and the other actors it takes there's a lot more time involved in in making a film or, or a play than you would imagine but whether it's hard work you know you have to get up early if you're filming. <laughs> uh, and you have to stay up late if you're acting in the th- in the theatre. So, But again, that doesn't seem like work to me. And if I weren't a professional actor, I'd probably be a hard-working amateur actor. So it's just something I, I like to do and want to do. And you, you talked about having to be a certain type of Tom, a, a Hanks or a Cruise, in order to mm. have the world revolving around you and films made for you. Being mm. in a position with The Lord of the Rings and X-Men as well, I guess, where those films have turned into fantastic, very handsome juggernauts, and you've been <laughs> the best the best known Hatton staff in town. Does that change the way that those productions work and the way that your involvement in them works when you, you, there, is, there is suddenly expectation and a great deal of it when so many people are working on that set? Well, let, let the, alone the, the joy of those uh, series of films was the joy that I've just been talking about in, in a company of actors in the theatre. The it was the same group. Not just the actors, because between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, there was a wholesale change of cast. But the director was the same, the designers was the same, the makeup person put on my makeup was the same, um, my dresser was the same. It felt like being at home and very comfortable indeed. Well, when you're making a film, or, or indeed rehearsing a play, you, it does cross your mind, is anyone going to see this? Is anyone going to want to see it? Well, I, I hope they'll want to, because if I'm in it, it can be guaranteed it's worth doing. I mean, I don't do any job unless it's the sort of product that I would enjoy coming to see as an audience. But that said, uh, the end result may not be good enough. The critics may not like it. The audience might stay away for any number of reasons that you can't quite work out. But the expectation of people coming to see the second uh, Lord of the Rings films, and the second X-Men were people who wanted us to make the films. They approved of what we'd done thus far, and they wanted more of it. Well, that's a very, very unusual situation to be in, and it makes it much easier, much more relaxed 
you know you're doing something that's uh, already approved of in advance, and that's not usually the case. So going back constantly to Middle Earth was... Um, it almost, at times, it almost at times felt like a duty, you know. There, yeah. there were millions of people throughout the world, people of all ages who wanted you to be doing the job. So for an actor like me who started in the theatre and still loves the theatre, primarily because there's an audience there live whilst you're telling the story, to know in a film where you normally don't meet an audience, and you can tell by the way that film actors arrive on stage at the Oscars rather surprised to find there's a live audience there and terrified as they read the prompter and stumbling over their words and not quite able to put one foot in front of another that they don't know about live audiences, but I do. And the only reason you do any job in our business is to entertain the audience, to please them. So the certainty there was an audience for those big films was uh, made the job uh, easier and you knew it had a purpose. Yeah. I wonder if there's any, whether you make any distinction between playing Estragon on stage and playing Gandalf on a film set, whether you make any distinction in your head between the characters, obviously the characters are very different, but the, the value of those characters, there's such a value to those characters, one in high culture, one in pop culture. Oh, whether I see. You, you, take, you treat those imposters just the same. Well, uh, my, my uh, taste in uh, storytelling is Catholic, you know, I, I like highbrow stuff and I like whatever is not highbrow. I like musicals, I like pantomime, I, I like classic plays, I love new plays, always interesting. On telly I enjoy soap operas and if people are surprised that this Shakespearean actor turns up on Coronation Street or if viewers of Coronation Street are surprised to discover that Ian McKellen's played Macbeth and Coriolanus and King Lear, uh, it doesn't surprise me and there's no distinction to me, between all those, that variety of work, because what connects them all is that I won't be doing it unless the script's good. So if it's good of its type, then I'm a candidate, really. In fact, one added spur in, for me of choosing a part is that it's something I'm not entirely certain I'm going to be able to carry off, bring off. Then you know you've, you've got a little frisson well, of danger, a little butter, butterflies yes. presumably help, help yes. the process. Uh, because... Not that I particularly like the danger, it can be nerve-wracking, really. But the satisfaction of when you land on it and the director says, cut, we've got that, Ooh, the relief that everything's worked is uh, enormous, but very enjoyable. Now, from 2013 to 2017, Samantha Power served in Barack Obama's cabinet and as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She started her career as a journalist and won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2003. She's written a memoir as well called The Education of an Idealist. For that, she spoke to our Andrew Muller on The Big Interview. My life had changed so much in a short period of time by virtue of meeting Barack Obama. I mean, I went from being a critic of American foreign policy, working alone as I had as a journalist and as a professor and as an activist, to suddenly being part of a team. You know, it was a beautiful, there was like a, a great solidarity in that team in particular because it was such an insurgency. Nobody really expected Obama running for the first time as a first-term senator to give Hillary Clinton a real run for her money. And we were behind 30 percentage points at different times in the race. And suddenly, at the time that that happened, we were the front runner. I'd had a book that had just come out that had done well. I had just met 
somebody on the Obama campaign, Cass Sunstein, and we just started dating, and I had had a largely dysfunctional romantic life before then. So I was Icarus, man. I mean, I was like <laughs> flying so close to the sun. I arrive in Dublin having had what I thought was a glowingly successful book tour stop in London. Bono texts me, wants to meet for a drink. You know, I'm not exactly hanging out with Bono very often. And I'm just like, wow, like everything is going well. And then... Nothing can possibly go wrong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I probably would never... Because my... I actually always had that sense of that something could go wrong of some kind because my dad had died very suddenly when I was young, as I write about in the book. But um, so I never would think nothing can go wrong. But I was just... I was just on the top of my game, I felt. And then suddenly an interview that I had given in London to the Scotsman were in saying what I thought was off the record, but was incredibly stupid and ill-considered to say in front of a reporter as I vented about some negative ads that Hillary had taken out on a friend of mine. You know, suddenly it all came crashing down. And Obama was amazing through this. I mean, emailing, calling, checking in, even as his campaign was going through a very rough patch. It was the first time that I had ever, when the going got tough, and it was very tough to be a global scandal. It, it seems kind of quaint now compared to the kind of scandals that exist seem a lot more severe today than this, what in retrospect seems so small, but even if Again, a, a terrible mistake on my part, but I never, in encountering any turbulence, had opened myself up to rely on anybody else. And so here was my first time going through something of that magnitude, but also my first time relying on someone, in this case, Cass, who I had just started dating. And I was so demoralized and despondent and 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 just the thought that I could either, that Hillary could think that I could think that about her or that I could hurt Barack Obama's campaign. And, and I was, you become so narcissistic also when something like this happens. I mean, I was absolutely convinced I was going to cost it's, him it's, it's the that, nomination. It's that thing where it, it's in the headlines, therefore it must be important. Indeed. And, and, you know, Cass is a constitutional law scholar, but also a behavioral scientist. And so he's giving me all this alleged consolation about, you know, no, this is just the spotlight effect. Uh, you know, uh, this is when, when you are in the news, you think that everybody else is thinking about you. And I'm like, Cass, they are thinking about me. <laughs> Look at the headlines in Pakistan, like for crying out loud. And so, but, you know, in the end, I think if I learned a lesson, I probably learned one lesson too well, which was to be more skittish around the press. So even when I was UN ambassador, I wasn't nearly as accessible as I might have been. And I think in retrospect, if you look at one of the issues in our current politics, like I don't think we sold American foreign policy and how it mattered for the American people as well as we might have. We sold American foreign policy, but not rooting it in the welfare of Americans. I'm not saying again that had I talked to the press more that Donald Trump would not be president by any means. But, but I do think there's a case for more grounding of what we're doing, again, in local American circumstances. And I, I could stand to have been more of a part of that, I think, in retrospect. But the bigger lesson was more personal, which was, man, like life, <laughs> shit happens. And, <laughs> and you need people and to be vulnerable and to be taken care of as I was by this guy, Cass. So I ended up marrying him, you know, in this interregnum 
between when I had to resign the campaign and then when he got the nomination, Obama got the nomination, I was able to go back. So that's sort of the best lesson of all is the the lesson that I describe multiple times in the book of lean on, you know, not just lean in, but lean on other people and open yourself up because you never know what's going to hit you. Now, in this clip from a 2013 episode of Monocle Uncultured, we meet the Japanese megastar Kiari Pamu Pamu, who was on tour in London. She arrived at Midori House with one of the biggest entourages ever to grace our studio, which sparked this conversation with Robert Bound. Gary, thank you so much for coming in to Midori House with such an amazing entourage. Should we count the entourage? I think we're going, I'm going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think there's basically about 12 or 13 people. And I'd like to know, there's obviously camera people here today. And there's journalists here, of which I'm only one. Um, what does everybody do that follows you around? Well, apart from my management team, I have a Japanese magazine crew and a film crew for a morning show following me around. This interview will probably be shown on Japanese TV as well. What have the camera crew been looking at? What's uh, Kyari been feasting her eyes on while she's been here? Let's see. Since arriving to London, I've filmed for Zip, for the morning show, in front of Big Ben. They've also accompanied me as I went shopping in the city. They've been pretty much documenting my whole visit to London. All right, and I want to go back to the beginning, Carrie, because we're kind of addicted to watching your, your videos on YouTube in our office here. I want to know how this style formed itself. I know it's a kind of Harajuku look, but maybe you could tell us about the genesis of your wonderful look. I always really loved Harajuku fashion. When I was in high school, I used to shop at Harajuku. I was basically a Harajuku girl. Upon graduating from school, I was approached by my current producer, Capsules Yastaka Nakata, who found me interesting and asked if I wanted to debut as an artist, which is how I started collaborating with him. Regarding the music videos, I especially wanted to make them surreal and fun, using a lot of CGI visuals to project a bizarre world. The clothes you wear and the outfits that you wear in your videos are quite amazing things. I want to know how, what the longest time you spent in the hair salon is. Hmm, it must be something like six hours. Being Japanese, my hair is originally black, so after all the bleaching and colouring, it tends to take up many hours. And the costumes, the outfits themselves, are like amazing things as well. They're sort of very they're wonderful, beguiling things to look at. How do you um, decide what look you're going to get for each, for each video? Do you start off with a very clear idea or does it kind of, is it just a big crazy mess? With each music video, there is a hidden theme and I have a general idea of how I want things to turn out. But because I never explain the theme, I guess they must just appear really crazy to everyone. I'm also not just about being cute or kawaii. I'm sort of aiming for an addictive sweetness, one that's not just soft and adorable. 
I'll add things like disgusting and gross CGI visuals to give it a sort of traumatic and scary feel. Yeah, there's a bit of a monster vibe in some of the videos. It's kind of like hairy, weird creatures. And there's that there's that video where your eye falls out at the end. What's going on with that? So Well, the music videos are definitely where I get to do what I want the most. So it's something like a dark fantasy with scary as well as weird parts. You really can create wonderful videos using CGI and camera effects, and I really think it's where I can express myself the most. And tell us about your fans, Carrie. Um, you've got, I mean, some of, the, some of your videos have 45 million hits on YouTube. This is the stuff of legend. This is megastar status. Are your fans totally fanatical? Do you have to, do you have to change identities just to go from one, one side of Tokyo to the next? Uh, no, not really. Although, of course, there is a bit of that. This time, when I started my world tour, I went to Belgium and France. My fans abroad were going crazy, screaming like mad and chanting, Kiari, Kiari. I definitely have many more fanatical fans abroad. And finally, I'd like to ask, what's the secret of all these hits on YouTube, all these sales of songs? You sound great, you look absolutely wonderful. But is there a third missing element that I don't know what it is? Hmm, Hmm, I wonder. Well, what I often get told is that I don't really have any competitors, even within the Japanese market. I'm not an idol. I'm not part of a group. But I'm not a passionate solo singer either. Singing and dancing, mixing fashion and music equally, there aren't many artists like that in Japan at the moment. Many people tell me that my genre is quite new. In a sense, I guess my style is quite new. And is it as fun as it looks? It looks like, yeah, I know there's a lot of hard work that goes into writing these songs and producing these outfits and the, all the rest of it. It's a big, crazy, it's a lot of crazy hard work. But it looks like it's fun. Is it still as fun as it was when you started out? Yes, definitely. Well, now I really do get a lot of offers to MC and such. But when I do my live shows, I really find it so fun. And when I have one scheduled in, it's like going to an amusement park. It's very exciting. In 2014, we marked the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall with a series about its impact, including this by Monocle's Tomas Lewis on East Germany's national anthem. The national anthem of the German Democratic Republic. Just one of East Germany's national symbols for which the 9th of November 1989 marked the beginning of the end of a place in the theatre of nationhood as East Germans were allowed free access into the West for the first time. (laughs) 
Risen from the ruins, the anthem goes, and facing to the future, let us serve you for the good, Germany, united fatherland. The lyrics, composed in the early days of German separation, were written by Johannes R. Becker, a poet who had later become culture minister for the GDR. The anthem was composed at a time in the 1940s when separation, East Germany's leaders believed, would be a temporary reality, an aspiration all too clear in Becker's words, that the sun, beautiful as never before, he wrote, shines over Germany. Well, the score for the anthem was composed by Hans Eisler, and I've come to the music school in Berlin that today bears his name. Ja, from the ruins rising newly. Und der Zukunft zugewandt, lass uns dir zum Guten dienen, Deutschland einig Vaterland. Jürgen Ganser is a pianist and has been a professor of music theory here since 1978. I think this national anthem is, is um, remarkable because it's not pathetic like most of the others I know. <laughs> the first part is very calm. And, and soft. The second part is again like the first, but the, the finish is uh, bright, like in the text, the sun will shine bright over Germany. And I think this is uh, <laughs> very, very good. The past, he means, of course, the Hitler past. We overcome them united. This is, I think, remarkable. Born in Leipzig and educated by Schoenberg and some of the most avant-garde musicians on the continent, Hans Eisler fled Germany to the United States as the Nazi party rose to power. But then, as McCarthyism took root in the United States, Eisler, as an East German, was accused of anti-Americanism and once again fled back to Germany. There are two Eislers. Eisler was a, a, a composer who wrote music for a purpose. He knew if he writes a song that the people should sing. But when he writes music for the concert hall, the people want to hear new things. And uh, Eisler uh, understood it and he did it. Many composers uh, understand this, but they don't want to do both. They uh, writing songs, okay, that's all right, or they're writing symphonic music or uh, chamber music, it's okay. But, but both styles in one person is very seldom. And this was Eisler. Three days after Eisler and Becker's composition had been selected as the official national anthem in a public vote of sorts in 1949, it received its national debut at Berlin's State Opera House, the beginning of a campaign to cement it in the popular imagination. And it worked. <laughs> 
But by the 1970s, things had changed. Heike Amos is a historian at the German Foreign Ministry and author of the book Auferstanden aus Ruinen, an analysis of the East German national anthem. Die DDR dringt darauf, als Staat international anerkannt zu werden. In the beginning of the 1970s, the GDR gets recognized as an independent state. It becomes a UN member and starts setting up diplomatic relations with almost all other countries. It then became painful for the GDR government to have an anthem with lyrics about the beautiful sun above Germany or the country being united. It did not fit the politics of the time anymore, and they did not want to be made aware of that. So they stopped singing the anthem and only played the melody. And that's how it remained, an instrumental piece throughout the closing two decades of the German Democratic Republic. Well, I've come to the 2014 Berlin Masters Gymnastics Tournament at a sports complex here in the centre of Berlin. Now, beyond East Germany's military marching grounds, it was in sporting arenas like this one that the anthem had particular potency. And one of those for whom it held a special place is Yuri Robel, a gold medal winning gymnast for the national gymnastics team of the GDR. Standing on the podium, he says, was a moment where you had the feeling you would contribute to your country and at the same time represent that country and give something back to it with your victory. A thank you, if you like, for all the support you'd received. It was a moving, beautiful moment. But by 1989, protests were filling the streets of Leipzig and beyond, and the national anthem reappeared in an unlikely role, as the historian Heike Amos now explains. When the demonstrations in October, November 1989 were at its height in the GDR, these phrases from the anthem, such as Germany, United Land of Our Fathers, or the title Risen from Ruins, was used as a slogan during the protests or on flyers and transparents. The whole phrase, Germany, United Land of Our Fathers especially, as the wall fell, East Germany's trappings of state, its flag and its national anthem were all cast aside in favour of its West German counterparts, something that still concerns Heike Amos. But the problem is, in Germany, and I don't know how it works in other countries, but who decides what song is going to be the national anthem? Where does it say that? But as Berlin prepares to mark 25 years since the fall of the wall, for the East German gymnast Yuri Robel at least, the divisions have long been put aside. But do you, do you miss the old national anthem? No. No, not at all. Today, no problem. like to report from around the globe here at Monocle 24, but the closest we've come to leaving the Earth's atmosphere is the time we invited American astronaut James F. Riley onto the Monocle Weekly. Riley has taken part in three space missions in his career, and here he spoke to Monocle's Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards. 
James, welcome to the Monocle Weekly. Uh, great, to, great to have you here at Midori House with us. There's obviously so many questions I want to ask you about your space travels. Um, but I wanted to ask you, first of all, about that journey, I guess, from being a, a geologist and sort of searching for oil and gas, which is sort of what you were doing before, into space. How did that come about? Was it an ambition you'd always harboured? Or did someone say, do you know what, you'd be rather good as an, as an astronaut? How, how does something like that happen? It was, uh, I was like many of us and that uh, I always wanted to be one uh, from the time I was about eight years old. And uh, John Glenn was actually on his first mission and I was sitting in a dentist chair in Vancouver, Washington, where we lived at the time. And, and the dentist was fascinated. There's a human in space, you know, and he was talking about that. And at that time, they didn't have satellite communication. So they had to wait for John to come into ground coverage. And when it did, for 10 minutes or so, they could talk to him. And they broadcast it out on the radio. And uh, the dentist went over and listened to it. And after one of these passes, he came back. And I'd been laying there, obviously, for about 10 minutes. And he said, uh, do you think you'd like to be an astronaut someday? You know, he was just flabbergasted by this concept. And, of course, I'm laying there, an 8-year-old kid with all that stuff in my mouth. <laughs> all I could think about was anywhere but here. You know, but it stuck. And uh, that uh, followed all the missions all the way through uh, Apollo and into Apollo Soyuz and, and then the beginnings of the shuttle program. But um, the Navy... Um, when it came time to become a fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut, which was my big plan, the Navy didn't need fighter pilots about halfway through my college career. So that was sort of a big life-changing moment. Found out I liked geology, so I pursued it and uh, ended up uh, getting me down to the Antarctic where I spent four and a half months out in a remote field camp doing uh, field work. So got a chance to do a lot of really cool stuff. But in 1985, I realized some of these folks are civilians, and so I applied. And uh, they were very gracious when they said no. Uh, they said no eight years in a row, and then they finally called me in for an interview in 1994. And then I was very honored to be called to uh, be part of the 1995 class of astronauts, which was the 15th from the original seven, which included John Glenn. It's a shame that we don't actually for once have a webcam because you, you do look like an astronaut, I must say. <laughs> First of all, there's something about your demeanor. I, 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 I'd... I'd trust you up there. And uh, you have the, the, the perfect NASA jacket on. You have a space tie. You, 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 we believe that you're the real McCoy. Uh, well, no, I was going to ask, actually, I guess to reflect on that, do, do you find that the, some of the skills and disciplines that you had, did you have the skills that you then put into practice in space already? Was it an innate thing, or did you have to acquire these? What was that process like by the time you got to sort of mid, mid-1990s and you realised this was going to happen? Is it sort of starting learning again, or is it building on you know facets of your, your skills you developed over many years? There was some element of that, of course, but now one of the other things, they, they train us a lot. You know, So we start basically from the beginning and, and learn everything we need to know from a technical aspect. But one of the things, is, which is more indirect, but really more into the... Uh, sort of the personality type was that I, I recognized that I'm now in the company of overachievers. And so I really had to step up my game, you know, to just meet their expectations, uh, which drove me to being very efficient and, uh, and correct some of the bad habits that I'd gotten into over most of my adult life. And and uh, they, they really uh, helped me pull myself up by literally my, boot, my bootstraps and being able to uh, compete with my, my peers. Jim, you've brought in a few things to show us. Uh pair of gloves here. Yes. Uh, uh, tell us about these. Okay, so one of the questions that I know always comes up is, uh, you know, what are the things that you have to do in space and their skills that you have? And, and one of the more difficult ones is uh, trying to achieve what we would normally do here on the ground, but having to do it in an environment that's really foreign to you. And when we do the spacewalks, the, the suit and everything is actually very bulky. So you're now about twice your normal size. Uh, everything you're doing is is very difficult, uh, and you have to learn a new way of doing it. 
And so instead of just reaching up, for example, to touch something that might be over your right shoulder, you can't really do that in the suit without fighting the suit, and that'll wear you out over time. So you learn to turn and, and do different things and, and make sure you're, again, play to your strengths, figure out what works well in the suit and what doesn't. And so one of the things that I did as a, an instructor when we had folks that were coming in to do the spacewalk training for the very first time is before we ever even got into the suit, I would give them a little challenge, and, and I thought you guys might be able to try this one out. So I'd like, I'd like to come up for a challenge. Okay. Yeah, 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 so let's, yeah. give it, let's give it a go. Okay, so uh, here's a glove for each of you. Uh, okay. So obviously one hand versus the other. Are either of you right-handed or both? Uh, I, I'm, 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 right, right, I'm right-handed. Oh, so both are right-handed. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, it's okay. We can, uh, do it. One of us need to put it on the left hand, really. Actually, that's fine. Uh, uh, this will be a challenge. We'll see okay, who's, yeah, yeah. who's better at this. Okay. Right, so, and what I'm going to do is, I've got uh, coins here. I wonder what those coins are for. I thought, I thought <laughs> yeah. you were going to tip us at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice guest. <laughs> okay, so what, I'm, what I want you to do is just pick the coin up uh, with the gloved hand. You can't use the other hand at all. Okay. Just pick up the coin with your gloved hand. And you can pick any of the three that I've got here. There's a 10p coin and a penny and a, and a one pound coin. Okay, so fine. You can go for the thick one if you want, if you think okay. you're... Think you're, that, was good. that was my be, that was my immediate instinct, my competitive okay. drive. And you you okay. go you go first, Andrew. Right, okay. Now, yeah. oh yes, confounded thing. This is this is less the same. Oh, so we, we we've put the coins on the on a on a piece on of a, wood now, which um, I managed with the, the chunky one pound coin. I just about one. managed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, okay, so try, I, let me give you the ten p here. Okay, let's try that. Let's one. try that one. Be careful. I, this, this gentleman would have your money in his pocket in no time. Yeah, I noticed the 1P coin disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is almost impossible to pick these things up. Okay, I'm, I'm with, with defeated mitten. by that. I, okay. would, I was going to try rolling it to the side and easing. And, and we must point out, these, these, are, these are not space gloves. These are, these are just regular wool gloves. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay, so now, right here, you know, do that same thing, but put your finger on the top of the coin and put your thumb right there and just slide in. Yes. So if we slide it off the piece of wood using yeah. an edge. And this is the technique you have to move, use when you're in space. I Actually, the only lesson there is really you have to think about doing things differently. Okay. Right. And there's the usual way we do almost everything, and that is, you know, just pick it up, right, because that's what I asked you to do. But when you actually have to do it, you'll find that doing it the way we normally do it here on the ground is oftentimes impossible. That's the real lesson there. Uh, we wanted to actually uh, shed a little more insight into some of the experiences once you're in orbit and in space. Now, I think we've got some food stuffs, and our intrepid producer, Tom, is going to bring that, <laughs> bring that in to us now. We might ask you about that as well. Uh, can I ask you a, a, a slightly tougher question while you're, we've got, we're getting, waiting for the food to come in? Because, again, Mr. Mr. Edwards here is likely to snaffle this. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but tell me, the first time you were in space and you go out of the space station to do a spacewalk. An element of fear, an element of caution? Because if it was me, I, you know, I, I'd, I think I would be petrified. Actually, the thing that was sort of amazing, and I'll actually start from the launch because that's, I expected to be quite nervous, actually, on the first one. You know, you'd think that three and a half million pounds of high explosive that you're strapped to is going to be something that focuses your attention and might get you a little nervous. But it turns out that on the day of launch for SDS-89 on my first one, uh, the night before, we actually go out to the pad, just the crew, just ourselves, and we it's our opportunity to just kind of look up at this vehicle and think about what we're doing. And, and I was doing the same thing that I used to do with uh, submersibles, and then I'd look at it and, well, what could happen? And you walk through and catalog all the risks, and 
and basically, you know, 90% of the things there are things that we're trained to respond to and, and, and can correct it. And then there's that last bit, you know, and about 10% of the things that could possibly go wrong that you just don't have anything you can do about, and it's just a bad day. So I was sitting there thinking about that, and a, a young man came over, and he was part of a team that looked for ice on the outside of the vehicle before we launched, and he came over and said, we want to just let you know that you're going to have a 100% safe bird tomorrow. We're going to make sure of it. And uh, I was just floored by that. And then so the next day I was thinking about him and realized he's really speaking for literally the hundreds of folks there at, at uh, NASA that were working on the program to make sure it was as safe as it could possibly be. And uh, then that became much easier to accept all those other risks that were left. And when I went out, uh, I was actually not nervous at all. And the uh, spacewalk is uh, has to be, um, by the time we get there, we've practiced so much on the spacewalks that that we're thinking about all the details. And that's what I was thinking before I went out on my first one. And so I'm thinking about, you know, here's what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do first. I don't want to get behind here because if I am, it's going to impact here, here, here. And we literally had an eight-and-a-half-hour spacewalk down to five-minute blocks, and we knew exactly where things were going to be and where each of us, the two of us that were going outside to do the spacewalks, where we were going to be, where the arm was going to be, and all of these things. And so I'm thinking about that, thinking of all the things that could go wrong, what would we do about it, and and that type of thing. And so I was thinking of the details. I imagine it's like being up for a championship match, you know, and, and you're thinking about every possible thing, what's your opponent, and our opponent, of course, is the environment, uh, what, what's happening, what's going to happen, and thinking about all that stuff. And as I was doing that, um, you know, the one thing that I was completely uh, focused on was not failing. I just didn't want to fail. So I didn't want to start out behind. Uh, that would probably be the only thing I would say that I'm afraid of uh, is failure, and that's probably fairly characteristic. Well, my wife, of course, but, I, <laughs> but uh, she's not here, thank goodness. Uh, so um, that was what I was thinking of. And then Yuri Usachev, who was the commander of the station, came over gave me a safety brief. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. And then he goes, uh, here's what I really want to tell you, though, and that is, you know, every hour you need to take 10 seconds just look around because this is this well, remarkable Well, I was going to ask you about this because a lot, a lot of your predecessors have said, oh, the one thing I wish I'd done is taken a look and, and you know looked at earth from space this sort of thing did, it's great that he gave you that advice had you been yeah. think, were you mindful of that already or did no. it take that moment to... that was the best advice i've ever gotten because at the end of an hour i was on the end of the arm uh, janet who was uh, driving the arm for me i had picked me up out of the payload bay and and we were moving to another position and at that moment i actually had 10 seconds so i just kind of kicked back in my suit and looked past the tail of atlantis and there was the earth just floating by and I'll never forget that view because what you can see with your eye is so much more than what you can see with any imaging system. It's incredible. And finally, for this episode, a favorite moment from our Marcus Hippie, the time where he spoke to legendary television chef Nigella Lawson. Thinking about food and what it means, both in terms of what it means to me personally, but what I think it says about the way we live as a whole or the way we think about pleasure, the way we regard our own value or not. I think these are subjects which have always interested me and often it's not really possible to do more than the old sentence. So be able to romp around really investigating those thoughts and illustrating them with food, but not always, really was a deep joy for me actually. Looking at this collection of recipes, I'm wondering what kind of process was it for you to decide then what to include in this book and what to leave out? 
Do you know, it was largely a matter of instinct. And I say, I think so much in life is. I obviously took out all the sort of big recipes, you know, anything that fed eight or more seemed meaningless. But I think because I was also talking about particular ingredients, recipes became part of the book that I hadn't actually put on my list, but I thought, well, I do cook that a lot and it really does feel so much part of what I'm talking about. So as much as possible, I, I wanted the book to have a sort of organic structure. I, I sometimes call it my culinary stream of consciousness and it's certainly not linear. But I, I think that on the whole, without it being a conscious decision, I think recipes which I felt gave me a real sense of home that were comforting. By that, I don't mean always that they're heavy, although that is sometimes the case, but recipes that seem to me to say something essential about my home, how I've fed my children over the years, how I remember eating when I was younger, and the sort of food that stays important to me, no matter what the vagaries of fashion are. What are some of your favourite recipes in that sense, those comfort recipes? Well, I suppose I have a chicken in, I call it chicken in a pot with lemon and orzo, which is a whole chicken, which is cooked with a lot of lemon and little dried tarragon, small bit of chilli flakes, leeks, carrots, brought to the boil in a pot on the stove and then cooked in the oven. And then with orzo pasta added, you know, for the last bit of cooking. And it's sort of amazingly un-Instagrammable, really. And enormously comforting and full of flavour, but in a way that perhaps builds as you eat it. And that is very much indicative of the sort of recipes I was turning to. And I suppose as well, I've got a recipe I call soupy rice with celeriac and chestnuts. And it's very beige. And I wrote about that in the context of a chapter called In Loving Defence of Brown Food, because I wanted to wallow in the sort of food that one always wants to eat, but perhaps don't always find favour these days when everything has to have a sort of high octane impact. And I think that although those sorts of foods are wonderful too, and I have many of those recipes, I rather love the sort of, you know, the stews, the casseroles, black pudding meatballs, oxtail, the sort of food that instantly makes one feel a sense of being held. And just because sometimes they perhaps refer back to recipes that are traditional, I still want sometimes to play a bit with flavour, you know, adding caraway seeds to an oxtail stew or to a colcannon, that Irish dish of colcannon, making brown butter. I like being able to develop ideas just according to how I want to eat at any given time. But those felt important to me and they're recipes I make a lot. And I think it's important for food to have, as much as anything can, a certain timelessness because Eating in a way can't be reduced to fashion. There has to be something about food that connects you in a way to other people, to your memories. And recipes are so full of emotional resonance. And that was important to me. But I also really enjoyed 
perhaps more newer enthusiasms and sometimes a certain playfulness. I've got a recipe for a fish finger porter, which is a very strange coming together of a Bengali dish using, you know, very basic what you could call British ingredients, which I saw on the journalist Ash Sakar's Twitter feed, and then I needed to cook it, and it found its way into the book. And I think this is important. You know, there's a lot of variety. I've done quite a lot on plain cakes, because I rather love a plain cake. There's a sort of cake you might bake in a loaf tin and then cut into slices and eat quietly. So I felt I wanted to give room for different textures of food, not just the shiny and high gloss, but also the sort of softly woven, if that makes sense. It totally does. I don't know if it's just me being Nordic, but I did spot a fair number of recipes from Scandinavia. Jansson's Temptation is there, or Jansson's Frestels, as it's known in Sweden, Norwegian pork ribs as well. Are there regions that inspire or interest you particularly, and what is this Nordic thing? Well, the Nordic thing, funnily enough, I spent an awful lot of time in Norway as a child. And so I've always had a fondness for Nordic food. And the uh, Janssen's was also because a Swedish friend talked about it so much. And I did actually have to consult his mother over the making of this recipe. So I love Nordic food. But I also think, in a way, it's not so surprising that Nordic food really fits so easily onto a British table because our climates are not so very different. And my grandmother, by the way, my grandmother was a passionate lover of all things Scandinavian. So it was very much part of my childhood. And, you know, I love the flavours. I love dill. I love cardamom, juniper berries. And, and it's food I love. And I there's no more unifying theme. They are such great recipes in a way, and perhaps they haven't always been fashionable, but Nordic food became very fashionable in the in the chef side of the table. But it's the home cooking that really appeals to me. I think it's also, I, I love the fact that this book is not just about food. There's also at least one drink recipe over here, a recipe for a green, mean, dirty martini. Can you tell us the story how the idea was born? I will. So I was salting the cucumber to make a sort of Scandinavian-inspired cucumber salad. And during the photo shoot, after I you know, squeezed out the excess liquid and tossed the cucumber in its pickling juice and so forth, Kaz Hildebrand, the book's designer, who is a great designer, I've worked with her since my very first book. We've been working together since 1997. And I said to her, look at the wonderful color of this liquid. It's an absurdly bright green. And she tasted a bit and she said, oh, well, you've got to make a cocktail with that. And because, of course, it's very salty, I made a martini, a a sort of a little twist on a dirty martini. And instead of using the olive brine, I used the leftover liquid from salting my cucumber. And it had to be done. And she was right. It's rather wonderful. I'm wondering how the inspiration, is there a specific route or way you invent recipes and where you get the inspiration from? I always am wary of the term invent because we draw on so many other things and other people's ideas when we cook. And I'm not sure if anything is ever invented exactly, but I get ideas and inspiration from such a wide range of places. So it might be someone on Twitter. 
It might be reading someone else's cookery book or it might be going shopping and seeing an ingredient that I suddenly feel I want to buy. Or it might be that I have have a spice in my cupboard, which is just looking rather forlorn there and I haven't used it for a while and I start using it in different ways. So I think that I'm always open to it. I think truthfully, if I reflect on it in terms of the number of recipes that come this way, most of the recipes that I do, which are perhaps different from anything I've cooked before, come from opening the fridge and feeling I've got to use up something in the vegetable drawer or I've got leftovers of something else because I find then I haven't planned anything. And so I have no preconceived idea of what it's going to be. I just sort of go with the flow when I'm cooking. And because then my thinking brain is turned off and if you like my feeling brain, uh, my senses come to the fore, it allows me to create what I want to eat in a very clear and non-judgmental way. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, of course, then I've got to backtrack afterwards and, you know, work out how much I must have put in of everything because I don't weigh or measure when I cook like that. But I think that's probably the richest seam of ideas, you know, that sort of what someone once called communicating with the ingredients. <laughs> but, you know, cooking is communication, writing about food is communication. And I felt that so strongly over lockdown. I spent a lot of time on Twitter, you know, trying to answer queries. You know, when people wanted to cook, but they didn't have all the ingredients they wanted. And normally I would feel somehow I couldn't answer any queries unless it was about a recipe of mine, but no one could afford that luxury. And so I would say, well, I think you could do this or I think you could swap in that. And I felt that what was so important there was this sense of contact with other people and the conversations around food and the way it makes everyone feel perhaps less isolated, even though perhaps, you know, we were all in our separate areas of the world. And I think that's such an essential part of food and perhaps one of the most important parts. That is a selection of some of our favorite moments on air selected as part of the celebrations of 10 years of Monocle 24 this month. Listen over more live on Monocle 24 or browse the selection at your leisure over at monocle.com. <laughs>